This is Sarah. Do you want to introduce your family? Um, I got my mom, Gigi, and my dad, Doug. They've just been helping me out as much as I can. And it's been a wonderful little week that we've had, so. <laughs> Great. So let's pray for Amy. Okay, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open up to 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, 
cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish which, with a great army against Jerusalem to king Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust? That you rebel against me. Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able to, on your part, to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, 
and every one of you from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and they told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, and look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste the nations and their lands and has cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, as we come and we take a look at Hezekiah's life today, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you have to say, that we would put our full trust and faith in you in everything that we have, every situation that is going on in our life, Lord. I pray that uh, we would come with open hearts to hear what you have to say right now. I pray that you would guide us and direct us and just have us to follow after you in everything that we do. In your name I pray. Amen. Hezekiah. Who is Hezekiah? Hezekiah was the 12th king of Judah. 
There are more chapters devoted to Hezekiah than any other king up to this point since Solomon. There are 11 chapters devoted to him in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. The Lord has a lot to talk about Hezekiah. He has a lot to show us through Hezekiah's life. In the book of the Kings and in the books of the Chronicles, the phrase, the Lord is with him, is only used to describe three different kings. King David, King Solomon, and King Hezekiah. That puts Hezekiah in a pretty elite group of kings. Those are the only three kings where the phrase, the Lord was with him, is used. There were only two kings that successfully defeated the Philistines. King David and King Hezekiah. Those are the only two kings. Hezekiah was totally committed to the Lord. He was all in. He was a man after God's own heart, just like King David. If we were to look the account of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we would see that the first thing that he did in the first year of his reign, in the first month of his reign, the first thing that he did was to restore the temple. He restored the worship to the one true God in Jerusalem. His father Ahaz had desecrated the temple. He had brought in pagan idols, pagan altars. He was sacrificing to pagan gods in God's house. Hezekiah restored this. He restored worship to the one true God. He also reinstituted the Passover. Passover had not been held since Solomon was king. He removed the high places, the places where the people would sacrifice to foreign gods throughout the land. He removed them from the land, something that no other king before him had done. He trusted in the Lord. He knew God's word, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a man of prayer. This is who Hezekiah was. So what is going on during this time? As we just read, we see that Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria. His father, Ahaz, was paying tribute to uh, the king of Assyria, and Hezekiah rebelled against him. He's not going to pay him tribute anymore. He decided he's going to put his trust and his hope in the Lord. He's not going to pay another king off. And as this is going on, we see that the northern kingdom, Israel, is being taken captive. And they're being taken captive because they did not follow the Lord. They did not obey the Lord. So Hezekiah, a lot of what we just read was just for background. We're going to focus mainly on 11 verses at the end. Hezekiah, he had some major problems he was facing. He was facing the fiercest nation on earth at that time. The Assyrian nation was the most powerful nation on the earth. They had not lost a battle for about 150 years. And not only were they a powerful nation, but they were an unbelievably cruel people. As they would conquer nations, as they went to conquer people, they had some pretty rough tactics. I debated whether I should say them or not. I'm going to. Some of the stuff that they did. They would skin people alive. Sometimes a process that would take up to five or six hours, they would skin them alive. And then they would just leave them there to die. They would put, they would take poles, sharpen one into the poles, and stick people on those poles alive, put them up in the air. They would let gravity pull those people down over a period of a few days until they died. As they would take cities, they would capture people, As they were trying to besiege those cities, they would take those people that they captured, cut their heads off, put them on poles, and put them around the walls of those cities. So that the people that were inside the cities, as they looked out, they would see their friends and their families with their heads on the poles. These guys were cruel, brutal people. This is the country that Hezekiah is facing. These are the guys that want to take Hezekiah and Judah out. Let's go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, and that's where we're going to pick it up from. It says, Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirharka, king of Ethiopia, Look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you. 
saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the Lord, of, uh, into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of the Zephyrim, Hina and Iva? These are the people, these are the areas that the Assyrians had totally annihilated already. Hezekiah would know this. He would know what happened in each of those cities. So what they're doing is painting a picture in Hezekiah's mind. This is what's going to happen to you. So this is what Hezekiah is getting. He's getting this letter. He's going to get this letter, and he knows what happened to these people. Verse 14, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So now, Hezekiah, he has a threatening letter in his hand from the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He has every reason to be stressed. I wouldn't blame him if he was stressed. He has every reason to be stressed. What news? I want you to think about this. What news in your life? are you dealing with right now that is stressing you? What situation are you going through in your life right now that is stressing you? Are you distressed? Are you discouraged? Is there something going on in your life right now? Each of us probably has our own thing that we're dealing with. So what are things? What are things that stress people out? Hezekiah had a threatening letter. Is it your job? Is it kids that won't stop screaming? Is it a pile of bills that you can't pay? Is it your boss at work that's hounding you? Is it school? Classes that you're having trouble with? Is it reports that are due? Is it deadlines that you have to meet? Is it the death of a loved one? Is it the loss of a job? Are you worried about losing your job? Have you gone through a divorce? Are you facing divorce? Is it an illness that you're currently dealing with? Are you moving? Is it raising children? Is it working long hours? What is it for each of us? The list can go on and on. We live in a world that is full of stress, full of anxieties and tensions. So I want to take a look. What is stress? I looked up the definition of what stress is in two different dictionaries, and I want to compare the two different definitions that I found. Both of them were in Webster's Dictionaries. One of them is from 1828. The other one is Webster's Dictionary from 2015. In 1828, the definition of stress is force, urgency, pressure, importance, that which bears with most weight as the stress of a legal question. This is the example they give in the dictionary. Consider how much stress is laid on the exercise of charity in the New Testament. What does that mean? You can substitute the word emphasis in there. Consider how much emphasis is laid on the exercise of charity in the New Testament. That's the definition from 1928. 2015, 187 years later, a state of mental tension and worry caused by problems in your life, work, etc. Something that causes strong feelings of worry or anxiety. Those definitions are quite different. I want you to keep those two different definitions clear in your mind because we're going to come back to that. I have one more definition that I looked up. I looked up, I wanted to know what's the medical definition of stress. The medical definition of stress is stress is a normal physical response to events that make you feel threatened or upset your balance some way. When you sense danger, whether it is real or imagined, the body's defenses kick into high gear in a rapid, automatic process known as the fight-or-flight syndrome. I'm sure most of us have heard of the fight-or-flight syndrome. This is what it is. The fight-or-flight syndrome, this is the system, the stress response that God gave us. This is how he made us. He made it and gave it to us to protect us. It has a purpose. For example, if you're in an emergency situation, stress can actually save our lives. If you're driving down the road and a car pulls out in front of you, it's that fight-or-flight syndrome that gives you that knee-jerk reaction to slam on the brakes so that you don't hit that guy. If you're walking in the forest, hunting, 
and a bear decides to chase you, it's amazing how fast you can actually run. When that system kicks in, you can climb trees you didn't think you could climb. It gives strength to people when they see somebody, when something heavy falls on somebody, they can go and pick that up. This is strength that we normally wouldn't have, but it is in us. It's a stress response. It's the fight or flight syndrome. It's the way that God made us. He made it for our protection. So how does this fight or flight syndrome work? That's what I want to look at real quick. So what happens when you perceive, this, this is what happens when you perceive a threat, your nervous system responds by releasing a flood of stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. Those are the hormones that are released in you when you perceive a threat. This makes your heart pound faster, your muscles tighten, your blood pressure rises, your breathing quickens, and your senses become sharper. These physical changes, they increase your strength and stamina. They speed up your reaction time, and they enhance your focus, preparing you to either fight or flee from the danger that's at hand. Now, I have a list of 11 different things that these stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, do to our body so that we can see, because we're going to tie it back in later, to what kind of damage can they do. So, one, it accelerates our heart rate. This delivers blood to our body faster so that we can get the nutrients we need to get out of the situation we're in. Dilation or opening of the coronary arteries. Dilation or opening of the bronchial tubes, which allows us to get more air, more oxygen to our cells. Increase in the force of heart contractions. Increase in the rate of metabolism to give us the energy that we need. Increase in anxiety. Increase in GI motility. An increase in rate and depth of, ins- of respiration. A decrease in the feeling of tiredness and a decrease in salivation, which is where we get dry mouth from. And dilation of pupils, or the opening of our pupils so that more light will come in so that we can see clearer. So this is what cortisol and adrenaline does to our bodies. Now, our body cannot distinguish between physical and psychological threats. When you're stressed over a busy schedule, or over an argument with a friend, a traffic jam, or a mountain of bills, your body reacts just as strongly to these situations as if you were facing a life or death situation. The body cannot tell the difference. Now remember, our body's stress response was given to help us, to protect us. God gave it to us. But what happens when it is constantly on day after day after day after day? Because we live in a life of stress. There's negative effects that happen when that cortisol, when that adrenaline is coursing through our veins, through our circulatory system. It does some things that uh, are irrevocable. One, heart disease. Remember, cortisol and adrenaline, they increase our blood pressure. So, increase in blood pressure day after day after day after day leads to stroke. It leads to heart failure. It leads to kidney failure. It leads to heart attack. Now, that's the main one I want to look at. Remember that. It leads to heart failure. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It leads to asthma. It leads to obesity. It leads to diabetes. It leads to headaches, depression and anxiety, GI problems such as heartburn and irritable bowel syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, accelerated aging, premature death, a suppression in the immune system. Suppressing the immune system leads us susceptible to infections. It makes us susceptible to allergies. It makes us susceptible to autoimmune diseases. It also leads to skin problems like acne, psoriasis, and eczema, and pain. Remember, there's a continual contraction of our muscles from adrenaline and cortisol. So as that's going on, those muscles stay tightened, and that's what leads to backaches. So these are all negative effects of something that God gave us because it's being used in the wrong way. So... What does the Lord have to say about stress? In Luke 21, 26, the Lord here, Jesus is speaking about end times. He says, one of the signs of the end times would be that men's hearts would fail them because of fear. The word for fear literally means anxiety. So he's saying hearts would stop because of the tensions. Hearts are stopping because of fear. Now, go back to those two definitions from 1828 versus 2015. In 1828, it was an emphasis, stress as an emphasis on something, like charity in the New Testament. 
2015, it's a mental tension and worry caused by problems in your life. That's the difference. I think we are getting closer to the end times. How many people have heart attacks because of continual day after day after day of stress? The Lord says that men's hearts are going to stop because of fear. That's what's going on right now. Why do we stress? Why do we worry? Ultimately, it's because we don't trust that the Lord's going to take care of the situations that we're in. Why don't you hold your places in 2 Kings chapter 19 and let's go uh, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to come back to 2 Kings. Matthew chapter 6 verse 25. It says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, Hezekiah, what did Hezekiah do? I know we didn't read it, but in Second Chronicles chapter 29, the first thing that he did was sought the Lord. That's what it says right here. It says, seek first the kingdom of God. Hezekiah did. We also, says, we also saw that it says that he trusted the Lord. Now, what is Jesus saying to us here? He is telling us, do not worry. He's saying, do not be worried. Do not be stressed out. Do not be uptight. It's a command. He's telling us, don't do it. But he doesn't leave us there. This is what I love about the Bible. He tells us to do it. But he also tells us how to do it. And we're going to take a look at that in a minute. What we need to do when we come to the Bible, real quick before we look and see how stress is dealt with, we need to come to it, um, not just reading it, not just studying it, but how does it change my life? We need to be doing more than just reading. If we are just reading the Bible to see what it says or studying to find out what it means, it's a good start because at least we're in the Word, but there's more. We need to read it with a question in our mind. So we need to come to the Word with a question in our mind. How does this work? How does it work in my life? How does it change my life? I like what Howard Hendricks says in his book, Living by the Book. I know a bunch of you guys have gone through it. The Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to transform your life. I love that quote because it's so true. We need to be in there, in the Word, seeing how does it affect my life? How does it apply to me? We need to be changed by it. We need to come to God's Word with the question of, how will this change my life? So, Jesus here is telling us not to worry. So how do we do that? We need to go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. These are two of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love this passage. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So what is he telling us here? What is Paul telling us? He's saying, be anxious for nothing. He's saying, do not be anxious. Don't be uptight. It's a command again. He's telling us, don't worry. Well, it's the same thing Jesus told us. He said, do not worry. Well, how do we do it? Right here, it says, but. That but is the stark contrast. 
It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what does that mean? It means that every anxiety that I have, every worry that I have needs to be taken to the Lord. When we're afraid, when we're confused, we just got to go to the Lord in prayer. That's what it says to do. He wants us to trust him. He does not want us to trust in ourselves. He does not want us to trust in the people around us. He wants us to trust him. The Lord is telling us to worry about nothing, but pray for everything. That everything means everything. It doesn't matter how big it is. It does not matter how small it is. He says, pray for everything. Take it to him. I used to have a uh, piece of paper in a frame on my desk when I was in college. Actually, I still have it. It said, nothing is too great for God to accomplish. Nothing is too small for his attention. You know, God is concerned for each one of us. Each of our concerns is a concern to God. It doesn't matter what it is. He wants us to take it to him. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to bring everything to him. You know, sometimes we can think, we can think of God as being so powerful that how could he possibly be concerned with the little things in my life like losing my keys? Nothing is too small to talk to the Lord about. Pray about everything. It says pray without ceasing. You know, prayer is a sweet to our Father. He delights in our prayer. He wants us to chase after him just like a little boy chases after his dad when his dad comes home. He wants us to be chasing after him. I know most of you know my little boy, Zach. If you don't, he's the one probably screaming in the back right now. <laughs> but when I come home, if you, those of you that have been in my house, you know when you walk in that back door, you can't see anything. You have to go around a corner. When I turn that door handle and open that door, I can hear Zach there yelling, Daddy! Daddy! And you can hear his little feet running on the floor. And you come around that corner and his arms are up. He wants you to pick him up. He wants you. He needs you. That's how God wants us to come to him. He wants us to come to him going, Daddy! Help me! That's what he wants. He wants us to chase after him. Now, I'll tell you, there is nothing that either of my boys could ask me that I would think was too small of a question to ask me. So if I'm this way, how much more is my father going to listen and wants to know what my concerns are? It says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we need to bring our prayers with a heart of thanksgiving he wants us to come with a thankful heart. You know, it is hard for somebody that truly has a heart of thanksgiving to also have a heart of complaining. They do not fit together. So if I truly have a thankful heart, I will not have a heart of complaining. God does not like complaining. He tells us to come with a thankful heart. The Israelites were in the desert wandering for 40 years, complaining against God. God sent fiery serpents to kill them. God does not like complaining. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it is God's will for us to pray without ceasing and that in everything we give thanks. So if you're ever wondering what's God's will for my life, it's to give thanks in everything and pray without ceasing. If you're doing that, you're in God's will. Now some of you may be thinking right now, well, why should I be thankful? I'm not getting what I'm praying for. I'm not getting what I'm asking for. God says to be thankful, so I think we should be thankful. I think we need to be thankful for what we're not getting. Be thankful for the things that we don't have. Be thankful for the diseases we don't have. Be thankful for the difficulties that he spared us from. Remember, God says that he withholds nothing that is good for us. That means if it's withheld from us, it wasn't good for us. Be thankful. So this is the plan. This is the plan that God has for us to deal with stress in our lives. It says, be anxious for nothing. Pray for everything. And be thankful in everything. So if we do this, what happens? What do we get? Let's read it again. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So what do we get? We get the peace of God. So whatever our worries are, our stresses, whatever stresses us out, whatever discourages, whatever is disturbing us, we need to take it to God. And he will give us peace. We will be content. So when these difficult situations come my way, like Hezekiah's letter, I need to take it to the Lord in prayer. Now what does the world tell us to do when these difficult situations come our way? The world tells us to take care of it. They say, go deal with your problem. Use your skills that you have. Use your abilities. Use your power. Fix the problem. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's what our society tells us to do. What does God tell us to do here? He says, take it to him in prayer and he will give us peace. Now notice here, it does not say a peace that comes from understanding. It says it's a peace that surpasses understanding. There's a difference. Maybe you've noticed when you take these difficult situations to the Lord in prayer and you give it to him, you do not always get the answer right away. Sometimes we never get the answer. But we have a peace. When we go to God and we focus on him and we give it to him, he gives us a peace. It's the peace that surpasses understanding. I don't have the understanding of what the answer is going to be, but I know that he does. And that's where our peace comes from. Our peace comes from him. I don't know what the outcome to every situation is going to be, but God does. So I have the peace that surpasses understanding. I know that it is in the Lord's hands, and I can trust him with any situation. It says God does not withhold any good thing. So I know that. God sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know. We only see here. God sees everything. He sees the whole picture of the beginning and the end. So we can have a peace, even though we don't know what the solution is. It is so much easier to just go ahead and trust in the Lord than to worry about it, to let that cortisol, to let that adrenaline run through our circulatory system, devouring our bodies. God does not want us to worry. It is not his intent that we worry. He wants us to trust him. Now this is how Hezekiah lived. He took his problem to the Lord. He put his trust in him. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 19. In verse 14, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So he took his problem. He took this letter that he had from the worst king, from the worst empire in the world, and took it to the Lord. He said, here it is. This is what we need to do. Whatever stresses us out, we need to take it to the Lord. Whatever causes us to worry, we need to take it to the Lord. Verse 15, it says, Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. What is Hezekiah beginning his prayer with? He's beginning his prayer by worshiping God. This is the way, this is a great way to open prayer. We can worship the Lord, magnify the Lord. What happens when we do that? You know, my problems as I come to prayer, my problems can seem huge. They can occupy all of my thoughts. They can occupy all my time. They can affect every aspect of my day. But when I worship the Lord and enter into his presence, my problems don't seem so big anymore. As I focus on the Lord, my problems, they're put into a different perspective. What really matters? Our problems matter to God, but God is in control of everything. I'm focused on him instead of my problems. I can release my worries to him. I can put my trust in him. It doesn't matter what the outcome is at that point. I know he's in control, so the outcome that comes is what he wanted. It says in Hebrews 12, too, it says that we need to be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that finishes for us. So, as you think this process through, of worshiping the Lord and focusing on him, and how awesome he is, which leads us to our problems not seeming so big, 
it makes me think, if you think that process through, it makes me think of an old hymn that we used to sing when I was a kid, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The chorus of that goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't that what we need? I mean, we, if we go to the Lord, my problems don't seem so bad anymore because I know that he's in control. That's what he wants. He wants us to go after him. So as I focus on him and seek him, everything is put into a different perspective. He's the one that's in control. I don't have to worry. Worship wipes out worry. And this is what Hezekiah is doing. He's opening his prayer with worship. He's focusing his mind on how awesome the Lord is. Now, what happens if I don't come to the Lord with a heart of worship? How do my prayers go? You know, if I don't come to the Lord with a heart of worship, often I find myself just laying out a list of my wants. I'm not focused. I'm focused on myself. I'm not focused on the Lord. I'm not focused on the Lord's will. As I worship the Lord, my focus changes. It focuses on what the Lord wants. Verse 16. It says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, Our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. That is the motive for his prayer right there. It's not about himself. He wants God to have the glory. That's his motivation. And I know it's his motivation because of what it says in verse 20. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. What does it say in James chapter 3, or James chapter 4, verse 3? You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. I know Hezekiah is not praying this to save his own self. He's praying it so that God would be glorified. It's not a selfish prayer that he's praying. Now let's skip over to verse 34. In verse 34, it says, For I will defend this city. This is the Lord speaking. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So the Lord says, I will save the city for my own sake. He does not say he's going to save the city for Hezekiah's sake. He does not say he's going to save the city for the people there. He's saving it for his own sake. He's not saving it because of how good the people are or because how good Hezekiah is. Hezekiah tells us in Isaiah that he is a sinner. We're all sinners. We need God to save us, but he's saving them for his own sake. He's not saving them because they deserve it, because they don't deserve it. Everyone here who knows Jesus, the son of David, we carry his name. I want you to see the correlation here of what God is doing for the city of Jerusalem and what he does for us. In this passage, it says that the Lord is going to defend the city. The Lord is going to protect them, and the Lord is going to see them through. Now, why does he do it? It's for his own sake and for his servant David's sake. Now, if we know Jesus, our name is in Jesus. We're associated with him, who's the son of David. So, the Father will defend you. For his sake. The Father will protect you for his sake. And the Father will see you through whatever you are in, whatever battle you're in, whatever difficulty you have, whatever dilemma you have. The Lord will see us through for his sake. We are his people. He will defend us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will defend us for his own sake. Now notice in this prayer, Hezekiah does not tell the Lord what to do or how to do it. He just took his problem to the Lord. For myself, I'll often go to the Lord in prayer with a plan completely worked out in my mind of how that situation needs to be taken care of. And I'll tell the Lord, hey, this situation needs to be taken care of this way and it needs to be worked out this way. 
this is my plan. I've already made my plan up. Hezekiah does not do that. He just goes to the Lord, and he wants the Lord to be glorified. This is how we need to come to the Lord. The Lord has ideas and plans that you could never dream of. Our plans are nothing compared to his plans. Look at verse 35, and it says, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. I guarantee you, Hezekiah did not have in his own plan, in his own mind, that all 185,000 of those guys would die in one shot. But the Lord did. He gave it to the Lord. He wanted the Lord to be glorified, and he was. Hezekiah didn't bring a plan to him already. He just trusted in the Lord. So Sennacherib, verse 36, king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons Adremelech and Sherezer struck him down with a sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. So remember, when we're in a bad spot, we've got to take it to the Lord in prayer. Just pray. It's so simple, yet it, sometimes it's just so hard. We want to control it ourselves. But just remember, take whatever it is, whatever is stressing us out today, to the Lord. Take it to him. Be thankful when you take it to him. And he will give you his peace. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why don't you stand, let's pray. Lord, I thank you, that, I thank you Lord, that we can come to you that you want us to come to you, that you are there waiting for us, that we can trust in you. Lord, I thank you that you are concerned about us, that you are concerned about the stresses that are going on in our lives. No matter how big or no matter how small, you can take care of them all. Nothing is too great for God to accomplish. Nothing is too small for his attention. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for carrying these worries and these burdens around with us. We need to give them to you. Lord, I pray that anybody here today that has burdens on them would give them to you. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us in everything that we do, that you would continue to guide us and direct us, that we would seek you all the days of our lives, that we would never go back, that we would not sit stagnant, that we would continue to press forward in you. Lord, you are our God, and we need to trust you in everything that we do. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of your word. In your name I pray, amen.